Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. Hello, my name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show goes with me through my laptop lifestyle and takes you to the places where you have those aha moments, those discoveries, and you meet those amazing people and observe those conversations that give you something you weren't expecting, that moves you forward, moves you upward, and brings you closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. What do you hear in the background? You hear birds chirping, vehicles going by, ambient noise from the next table. This is as real as it gets, folks. And I'm coming to you today from my high-tech studio consisting of my laptop, from my sumptuous Las Vegas balcony here in what I like to call the hottest city in America. And we have something that is very much on the minds of so many of our listeners here, and even on my mind as well. Remember, I'm not only the host, I'm also in the front row with you with my pad of paper and my two pens out. This is going to be about how to create a connection between your brand and your B2B, that's business-to-business customer. This is a very challenging thing, particularly in commoditized markets, particularly when there are so many options out there, and particularly in some B2B scenarios where there's still a thinking, at least from my observations, that relationships are based more on numbers than on people. So we're also getting into avatars. And to share with us on this, and he has a lot of great insights, which we're going to work our way through, we have Paul Cash. He's the founder and CEO of the multi-award-winning marketing agency, Roosterpunk, which is known as the go-to name in B2B storytelling in the United Kingdom. So we are going to find out more about him in just a second, but I will let you know that in conjunction with James Trezona, Paul Cash has released a new book called Humanizing B2B, The New Truth in Marketing That Will Transform Your Brand and your sales. You can visit the website at humanizingb2b.com and roosterpunk.com. And with that, Paul Cash, come on in. The weather's fine. Yeah. Hey, Adam, thank you for having me uh, all the way here from sunny United Kingdom. So, yes. Uh, glad to be part of the show. Absolutely. Well, uh, before we dive in, and this, as you can see, this is something that's really, really very much on my mind. Uh, what we like to do is I read off snippets from your official bio. It's so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here, and this is my show. Uh, but what I want to do is get to know you as an individual a little bit more and find out something from your journey 
something that's inspired you, something that's guided you, something that's happened, that's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Wow. Okay. Um, (laughs) It's a a big question. So uh, I guess like most people, my journey into work life uh, was never destined from a design point of view to be in the world of business to business marketing. You know, people fall into B2B. They don't plan their careers to go into it. They want to work for Coca-Cola or sexy automotive companies. Um, So I was lucky enough when I was at university to get a placement year working for Hewlett Packard, a great American company, right at the beginning uh, of the tech boom in the kind of early to mid 90s. And that kind of gave me a, an introduction to the technology sector. And uh-huh. I've always wanted to own my own creative agency. And I guess I managed to smash the two things together because of this emerging explosion in tech, the whole kind of dot-com boom that you know saw the rise of the likes of Microsoft and many other companies. And I was lucky enough to set up an agency then called Tidalway, which was one of the very first technology marketing agencies in the UK and myself and my business partner grew it to 140 people in the space of four years. We thought we were invincible, you know, two young people thinking, wow, this is it. We've made it. This is success. And then the dot-com bubble burst in 2002 and literally everything crashed around us. And we probably made every bad decision that every business person could possibly make. We hired expensive new business people. We spent mm-hmm. all our money on marketing. We set up offices overseas. We diversified. And uh, our money ran out, but the recession <coughs> kept on biting yep. And so I would say in terms of the journey I had, it was five years of being innocent and naive and just having a runaway success. And then five hard years of learning how to run a business. Um, and I guess that's that that notion of, you know, you, you're never quite sure what business life is going to be about, but the journey is always the journey. You've got to embrace it and learn from it, the good and the bad. Um, but I'm just excited right now. The B2B is in a golden era. It's in a really exciting place. And I'm excited to talk to you about what I see as the opportunities out there for companies to, to, to really grow. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's that time when you... It's so many of our listeners and so many of my colleagues have told me this. You move into entrepreneurship and you know that first year when you know everything and you're automatically a coach, guide, mentor to everybody else who's thinking about it. Then after that first year, you begin to actually discover what it means to be an entrepreneur. They say the first million dollars is the hardest, but I also say the first year is some of the easiest simply because of how blissfully naive a lot of folks are due to not knowing what they don't know and not even having a frame of reference to find out. Yeah, and I think I think it's really tough these days to be a young entrepreneur. When I started my journey, there was no accelerators, there was no boot camps, there was no mentorship, there was nobody giving you a bear hug, there was no real VC community, there was none of that. You just got on with it. And you were either successful or, or you went. Nowadays, young entrepreneurs, they have this network around them. And I kind of feel a bit sorry because everyone's giving them advice and decisions, all these wiser, older, smarter people. And it must be really difficult to know your own mind and be your own person and make your own decisions when so many more experienced people are, are throwing their hat into the ring and telling you what you should do. It uh, must be difficult for sure. You know, that same sentiment is why I created my business, the Podcast Reach System, which works with entrepreneurs like us to 
launch and create our podcasts, our key networking, client attraction, celebrity expert branding tool. There's two things that motivated me. Uh, the immediate motivator was when the bug hit and in-person stages disappeared, but speakers needed to speak. The larger issue is the term, how to start a podcast, why to start a podcast, how to launch a podcast. There is so much mutually contradictory information out there. And every provider who deals with one piece of the process believes that their piece is the only one that really matters, it feels like. So it's like nothing matters except for post-production editing. Nothing matters except for guest recruitment. Nothing matters except for syndication. Now, I don't think that that may be their intentions, but that's the way some of it comes across to me and some folks I knew. And there's also this whole thing of, okay, so how do I launch a podcast? Uh, wait, I have to build a website for that? But but, 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 but Anchor FM has a, a thing. Now, I'm not putting down Anchor FM, but I am telling you that uh, if you, I've seen so many folks who took a look at the podcast reach system with its with how it builds you a dedicated new media portal that you yourself control and own, they say, why do I need to go through that? I can just put a couple episodes up on Podbean and tell people I have a podcast. And I say, good luck. I'll never hear from you again. Yeah. And, I and, think- that's, and that's kind of what happens is those third-party platforms do not give people the ability to leverage the power of attraction of human and search engine eyes to grow businesses and brands the way that controlling your own WordPress website and running this stuff through your RSS feed does. Yeah, but what you've just said there, Adam, is symptomatic of, of B2B. You know, decision makers and buyers, they are overwhelmed with yeah. choice, overwhelmed with information and disinformation. You know, and naturally, what do we do in that situation? We look for mental shortcuts. You know, that's why storytelling in B2B, that's why emotion, you know, trusting your gut, not just necessarily trusting what a brand says, are things we're kind of going back to now because we trust those choices and the emotional response that, that creates for us more than we do all the companies who are pitching to us and doing the usual sales presentations and, you know, trying to hit us with the whole kind of speeds and feeds and product functionality and bore us to death with all that stuff. So, um yeah, it's changing market for sure. Right, cer- certainly, and 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 again, it's and what happens and what happens when you have to think too much? You don't think at all. Yeah, it creates paralysis, doesn't it? And that's uh, you know, now, to, to, a, to a certain extent, that's what large brands want. They want apathy because any incumbent supplier that that's just fine for them. You know, what I mean, it's the the chasing pack and the 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 other guys who've got to work harder to displace the incumbent provider in a B2B situation, they're the ones where, you know, apathy is the enemy for sure. Right. I, I am totally with you on that. So let's get into some of what uh, you uh, cover. And this is not exactly going to sound new to me, but I believe your take on it is to a degree in the B2B world, the B2B selling, the B2B marketing world, there's a delusion out there and it's that buyers always act in a rational logical and economic way i can't help but chuckle they don't they never have and what's more in your observation that what you call the tectonic plates of b2b have shifted and customers have evolved and you make the point that they don't just want to buy from you they want to buy into you so can you define what some of this stuff means yeah sure so i think you know 
most people get the notion that B2B has this label historically of B2 boring. And it's earned that tag, that label, because historically everybody has made that decision and somebody somewhere thought it was a good idea that you know people turn up for work and they turn off their personalities. And as you stated, all we need to do is hit them with why our product's amazing, features and benefits, uh, total cost of ownership report, and all the kind of stuff we think um, helps in the B2B sales cycle. And people will buy whatever it is we're trying to sell. And ultimately, you speak to any sales rep, and that's just like the worst place to be. Um, so that kind of transactional relationship just doesn't work anymore in complex business environments. And buyers today are much more interested in wanting to get to know a company, understand its purpose, its values. Does it have a really strong customer first ethos? What's its employer brand about? What's its employees doing? Are they on their website looking like they're having a good time, you know, committed to whatever social causes? Is the company trying to do things or take um, a stance on issues in society? And does it make great products? Are all these things all work together. They're verbal cues, they're non-verbal cues. Sometimes a salesperson's presence, sometimes it's you know the brand, the personality of your website or your content. And all these things make a difference in creating what I think is missing in B2B, which is really important. It's just that likability factor. You know, we buy from people who we like. And in the absence of salespeople, brands have to step into that moment. Websites, content has to be likable, has to engineer that quality in order to be able to talk about the products and services that companies uh, sell. Right. I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Now, let's discuss marketing leaders for a moment. Uh, they have to adapt and evolve, inspire others, and innovate continuously. And in order to do that, that requires strategies that, as you say, have an exponential rather than incremental effect on brands and sales. And I'll leave it to our listeners to understand exponential versus incremental. Uh, the former goes a lot faster than the latter. And also to implement them, they need these new super skills. So what are we looking at here? Yeah, so I think, you know, there is a big difference between working for a fast growth scale or working for a giant uh, global organization like Microsoft. But yeah. ultimately, when, you, when I speak to CMOs within many organizations, one of the things that they get mandated by the board is to build this marketing engine. Yeah. And that engine is using all the performance levers and metrics that most people are familiar with from Google to email to social. And it feels like what they do every month is they've got to calibrate these 25 levers and calibrate them in such a way that it spits out a slightly better result than it did the previous month. Yeah, and right. market forces and factors calibrate, calibrate, calibrate. And what you're seeing in that scenario is, yes, maybe stability, but you're never going to get the transformational growth that most businesses actually really want. And so the question comes, if all you want marketing to do is be the engine and pull the levers, then great. But marketing is capable of so much more than that. And that is part of what the book is about, is trying to inspire marketing leaders to engage with the C-suite around what I call these master levers of brand, of storytelling, of emotion, and how those master levers 
when they work with the performance levers, can actually accelerate revenue opportunities, can amplify opportunities, and create that transformational moment that most CEOs are actually in business to try and do. You know, they want to create a runaway success. They don't want the steady eddy grow really slowly type business. Um, and so that's what the book's trying to engineer. And we're seeing now for the first time ever this fascination around brand. You know, and lots of companies through COVID are repositioning, thinking about what their brand is, not just from a, a market-facing point of view, but from an employer point of view as well. And, you know, it's a it's 30 years too late, but it's happening now. You know, we're, we're slowly starting to catch up with our B2C cousins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in your book, which I can't wait to read myself, you bring the different aspects of this humanized B2B marketing that we've been covering together so that these B2B businesses can grow, dominate categories, and become meaningful in today's demanding world. It looks like we've begun to get into this topic, but when but help me understand a little bit better this whole humanization thing. Because there are certain brands I just I just don't see a human being. You mentioned Microsoft. I don't really see a human being there. Yeah, so I think that, humanized- that's, not, that's not that's not a criticism. I'm just saying I see blue screens, and I don't mean that in a pejorative either, because you know, blue screen of death, but stuff that's blue with the word Microsoft typed in that sort of bold to home looking font. Yeah, so you know, in fairness to brands like Microsoft, behind the scenes, there is a lot of work that goes on to try and humanize a Goliath technology company. You know, they have a very strong purpose. That's a real anchor point for the brand. And I know a few people that work at Microsoft, and it's a very rewarding place to work for that point of view. But when I talk about humanizing B2B, there's five principles. So the first principle is to recognize that B2B is about people. It's not about products. Yeah, that's where we've been for the last 30 years, a product-centric mentality. And the conversation always starts with the speed, feed, functionality, benefit place. And we need to get a grip and say, no, no, it's about the audience first and then working out how we fit the product to their needs. The second thing is we've seen, obviously, in the last decade, this move towards purpose and the whole kind of Simon Sinek start with why revolution that's existed through boardrooms but really it's now about purpose that's actioned so you've got to find a way to bring that purpose if you have it to the boots on the ground live on the street where your employees are where your customers are so that that purpose matters on a day-to-day basis the third thing is and this has been validated through endless research but the b2b institute and linkedin have been particularly good at driving this and that is Businesses that put emotion at the core of their marketing perform significantly better than businesses that don't. Yeah. So emotion is your friend. The fourth point, as I mentioned before, is that likability as a concept that works extremely well in B2C markets is absolutely transformational in B2B. And it's not just about likable people. It's about how you engineer that likability at scale through your digital environments and your brand so that people get a sense of who you are. They get a feeling for what type of company you are and the people behind it. And that's really important. And the fifth point is that, you know, businesses that use storytelling as a vehicle 
to be able to win over um, people, command attention, both internally and externally, are the ones that are probably going to be the successful uh, businesses of the future. So those kind of are the five principles behind humanizing. Yeah, that's now you mentioned the likability factor and the ability to uh, conceive of something as what I'm getting out of this partially is the idea of seeing a brand almost as a living organism. I'm picking that up. Yeah, I think that's true. I think obviously there's been a lot of misinformation, disinformation, you called it before about brand and brand when you speak to most CEOs, has had a tarnished existence within B2B. Uh, there's been lots of failed attempts down the line, you know, the colouring in squad, you know, brand is just about logo, etc. But obviously, we know the brand is more than that. Brand is everything. I think the best way that anybody described it to me is marketing is like asking somebody on a date, but brand is the reason they say yes. Okay, and so, you know, we Uh can have this great engine creating all this opportunity, but the result is, yeah, I want to go on a date with you because that is the reputation you've built and earned. That's that moment that you've created, the preference, desire, et cetera. And that to me is, you know, the really exciting part of where B2B is heading right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh Again, going back to what I said, I, there are certain brands I look at and I have a hard time thinking of them as anything other than a logo or a corporate presentation. Yeah, and at yeah, the same sure. time, that means I can't really feel a loyalty to them beyond how they serve my purposes. And the moment they don't serve my purposes, I stop paying. But if I feel some sort of emotional connection, I might stick around. Uh, there's a phenomenon that I'm seeing in coaching and mastermind programs where, and I'm actually doing one of these for a similar reason. You offer a program where there's at least an initial level that comes with a very low price point, And that is designed to create the bond and reinforce the bond between yourself and your brand and your prospecting customer to bind them to you as not only a paying customer now, but a more likely prospect for your high ticket offers. And the foundation behind that is twofold. One of which is it's such a low price point. It's probably like the last thing somebody will cancel because even just sending the email saying, thank you, but I'd like to end this month is more effort than letting it go. Candidly, I'm just saying that's how it is. But the larger piece is it gives people a sense that they've committed to something And even if they haven't logged in in a while, they'll hold on to it because they know they will, which they'll do that because they feel like if they cancel now, even though they haven't logged in in a while, that they're letting somebody down. Yeah. And again, you know, you've just touched on the whole use of human psychology and neuroscience and behavioral economics about why is it that we make decisions in favor of certain brands and not others. And the tactics you've just talked about there are important to understand the psychology of how we buy and how we make decisions. Making that initial commitment, a small commitment, actually has been shown to create a bigger commitment later down the line. 
Um, which is why you, when you go onto, you know, the streets of, you know, New York, Chicago, Las Vegas, and you have the, the kind of, um, what do you call, we call them chuggers here in the UK, the people who are asking for a charity donation and getting you to try and sign up to something. And all they want to do is shake your hand or have some kind of initial bond because they know they can get you there then you're more likely to stay and have a conversation and sign up and pay, you know, $20 a month to, to whatever charity. Um, so there's lots of stuff going on behind the scenes to try and make, maybe, maybe I'd even use the word manipulate to a certain extent, but in an intelligent, smart way to be able to um, leverage all this consumer um, behavioral psychology that is really exciting. And I talk about it in the book, which is, you know, we really are in the era of not just moving products, but moving minds and moving minds in our favor, making people see the world through our eyes. I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And this, I think, takes us to the next place where, and this is one of the things I really love most, is storytelling. It's, and I've discovered it's not a fad. It's not just a lever in your marketing machine. In fact, you call it the oil in the machine that makes everything work better. So I want to hear your thoughts on this, because this is something that's very close to uh, my conceptions of my brilliance and my passion when it comes to marketing and engagement. Yeah, so storytelling is nothing new. Obviously, you know, we can trace it back 50,000 years, the beginning of our species, you know, people in caves, sitting around campfires. We've heard all that kind of stuff before. But in the context of business-to-business storytelling, it's relatively uh-huh. new. Now, you would make a strong case that if you went back to the 1960s, yeah, and the typical B2B sales guy who went out on the road armed only with a sales aid, uh, a, a trade catalog, he was not just a sales guy, he was your archetypal storyteller. He would go in and engage a customer, and while he might be pitching the product, in most cases he was pitching himself. Yeah, and that's how relationships yeah. were in B2B. You know, and that was how B2B sales and marketing interacted. The content was the trade catalog, but the emotion of the sales pitch was always delivered by the charismatic salesperson. But then what we saw through the through the 90s and the noughties is every business went, hey, we don't need that expensive sales guy anymore. You know what? The internet's here. We're going to do it all for cheap on the internet. And what they did is they put all this facts and speeds and fees content on websites and sent out emails but they forgot to try and replace the sales guy. You know, so everything was about selling. And now what we're trying to do is, that's what the brand bit did, the showmanship that a salesperson would create, yeah, not just the salesmanship, and then also the relationship, what I call the three Bs, uh, the three ships of B2B, are really, really important. And, you know, that to me, I think is, is you know, back to this point about brand is, is, where, we're, is where we're getting to, the, the showmanship that the old sales guys would do to create that likability. You know, you you hit on something here, and this is a concept that I've shared. You mentioned the human figurehead. I have worked with brands myself that felt for some reason that their market would not respond to the idea of their company being led by a human being to say, oh, that's that's hokey. And they're gonna, we're going to look like just... Someone, another one of those fly-by-night marketing companies. We want to be seen as a serious, dominant player in the marketplace. Okay. Um, And I've proven to them time and time again that placing themselves in line as the human figurehead is what opens doors because people feel 
they relate to that person. Uh, we did a test with one of our startups and we moved into revenue where we had them develop. Well, they're, they're, they were doing it already. They were developing a white paper they're going to use for list building purposes. And we, uh, you know, have them set up their landing page, you know, opt in, get your white paper, et cetera, and then send them a follow-up email after they opt in. And I had them add to the PS to say, hey, could you do me a quick favor just because I want to make sure that I fulfilled my promise to you? Click reply and just type got it or received so that I know that I've, so that I know you feel like I've come through for you. Now, this and, and actually, this in two separate instances, the client saw that and said, oh, that sounds like Ryan Dice's follow-up machine. I said, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Now do it. And they said, but that, that's, that's dumb. That's like, that's like, oh, come on. That's, that's, that's that hokey marketing. I said, try it. And next thing you knew, they were in revenue because people would not only click receive, they would say, oh, my goodness. I, I remember when you and I met at, uh, at such and such seminar back in 2012, and I've always been wondering what happened to you. Man, we got to catch up. By the way, what are you doing now, and how much do you charge? Yeah, yeah. yeah it, opened, uh, it opened sales conversations simply because that little peak that said, go ahead, click reply, just let me know you got it, was the crack in the door that that reader was looking for so that they could reach out and feel like they were speaking with a human being. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, you mentioned about leadership there. I think lots of large organizations have benefited from having a leader at the front of their organization, whether it's, say, Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs or a Jack Welsh or a Richard Branson. You know, you don't always need to be this effervescent, enigmatic character. You know, Bill Gates wasn't, but... Um, People like those individuals because of what they've achieved. You know, they like for the discipline and the rigor and the intelligence they've been able to, you know, maintain massive market share and grow a business. And the business community look up to those kind of people. And, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, they've become celebrities in their own right. You know, the right. role of personal branding these days, specifically in VC-funded scale-up type businesses. So the, the figurehead, the leader, he doesn't necessarily need to be in the weeds of the business. He needs to be that spiritual leader driving the category, talking about change and, you know, being out there as the, as the, as the face of the brand. So having that kind of human interface into a company, I think is absolutely critical. I am, I am with you all the way on this. So here's a, here's a little thing I've been doing with a few folks lately in helping them to gain awareness around the same issue is if I say a few brand names, tell me what comes to mind when I say them. So Ooh, I'm going to... Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, and, and, these, and these are going to be very low-hanging fruits. And one of them is going to be a zinger. Being, and you're probably already guessing which one it is. So let's start with one I already mentioned. Microsoft, what pops in your mind? Bill. Bill Gates. Yeah. Amazon. Books. Okay, I was looking for Jeff Bezos, but did you see? <laughs> but even though you said books, did you see that bald head of his? Do you know what? I thought the name Jeff, but I couldn't remember what his surname was, so I went yeah. back to books. <laughs> and and then of course here's the zinger: Twitter. Yeah, Elon. <laughs> the guy that doesn't even own it yet. Exactly. So, I, uh, I, I took I took us here through this extremely low hanging fruit for a reason. Look how somebody who has only gone so far as to express an interest and get approved 
for a pending acquisition has already become the human face of a company he doesn't own yet as of the date of our conversation. Yeah, well, he's become the master of spin. I mean, the Dogecoin stuff he did with crypto, the stuff he's doing without even owning Twitter. I mean, literally, people just jump on what he does. He can move markets. He can put us into space. You know, he can pretty much do anything. Right. And and, and I, just, I just find that absolutely amazing that he doesn't even own the company yet, and he's already identified as its godhead. Uh, there are folks who have reported that all of a sudden they're unbanned from Twitter or all of a sudden they're getting like three times the engagements and algorithms that they were getting up until a couple of weeks ago, what have you. And they're saying, thank you, Elon. He had nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, crazy. So think about also how Elon's association with the Twitter brand. And again, somebody tuning into this six months from now, he might be the owner of Twitter. That deal may never happen. It may still be in pending status. There could be some updates. He could have partners. Somebody else could swoop in. A lot of things could still happen here, but as of this recording. And have you noticed some people have said, okay, well, Twitter really sucks, but now that Elon owns it, I'm going to log back in and give it another chance. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a renaissance in those kind of, you know, first generation social platforms, Twitter being one of them. Um, I'm one of the people I probably had an account from 2000 and whatever it was when it was set up and I've never really used it. But if he can go in and bring it to life again, and I think a lot of people will give it a second, second go. And it's because they feel a relationship with him. Yeah, they, they feel, recognize uh, they feel, his skills. They feel, as an yeah, they feel he's yeah. he's skilled. Uh, he seems like he really cares. He seems like he might actually make a difference. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I reactivated my account. I haven't done much with it because I'm not a big fan of Twitter. But I figured, yeah, what the heck? Maybe this will turn into something. It's it's funny how everything that's old is new again, and everything that was guaranteed yesterday means nothing tomorrow. Yeah, I think one of the truths that we talk about here is that you know when we're talking to the the small business owners and the the guys running companies of you know sub 50 million not everybody has the confidence or the desire to want to step up and be the face of their brand and you know they're uncomfortable in social media situations you know they prefer marketing and other people to to take that role you know there's many different personalities but i think it's really important these days that the companies and leadership teams find a way to think about their personal brands and think about yeah. how they can be the face of a company and not just be scared of it. Um, but it's, that's tough. It's a human you know, decision. People are scared of public speaking. They feel like, you know, they're going to do a piece of video content. Then, you know, it's going to take 50 different edits and they need to rehearse it. And, you know, they're as far away from the UGC world as, as you can possibly imagine <laughs> Exactly. So this kind of leads to what may be one of our wrap-up points here, but we'll see how this goes. Um, now we get into branding as a leadership challenge, not just a marketing one. So I did that little low-hanging fruit exercise of naming three of the best-known companies in the world and seeing how on two out of three, you immediately saw a vision of their founder. Uh, well, actually, in one case, you saw a vision of their founder. And in another case, you saw a vision of the guy who doesn't even own it yet. <laughs> so... Uh, what I and I tend to agree with you on this. You make this point in your book um, that we do need to work hard to bring the C-suite into all of this stuff, so that they understand the commercial value of brand building. Now, 
I'm not sure how you mean that, but just off the initial chat we had in the green room before we came live before the audience here, the way I read that is getting C-suite members involved in being the face of the brand. Is that what you meant or were you going somewhere else with that? I was probably going somewhere else. I think more to the point that CMOs get what brand can potentially do, but it's a hard job to translate that marketing brand kind of idea to the C-suite in a way that's commercial. Um, And that is always the challenge with brand because it's not the same as the traditional performance metrics like search and social and email where you can get click-through rates and bounce rates and, you know, analyze to the nth degree. Brand is a little bit more elusive in that respect. So it's difficult sometimes to get the money dedicated to doing it when the benefits are softer. But ultimately, trying to find ways to talk to a CFO, you know, say, you know, brand is your future cash flow. Do you know I mean trying to find ways to position what brands about is imperative if um, we're going to, you know, see companies really move the needle away from this kind of performance marketing and B two B to embrace other elements that will drive growth. So that's what I was trying to get to. But you know, C suite on stupid, they get this kind of stuff. It's just, you know, I think a lot of people have been burned in the past. You know, that's the that's the, that's the legacy yeah. of brand in B two B. A lot of it hasn't worked. So that's well, they're, yeah, they're nervous, yeah. Right? Yeah, because it's it's a challenge to quantify soft skills. It's difficult or, or soft marketing, like awareness marketing and general branding exercises. Uh, the return on investment is not always immediate. Sometimes it's actually slower, but also sometimes it hits in ways you don't expect. But all those three things come together to make it difficult to quantify. Ten years ago, when website conversion consulting was really its own separate thing in a big way, and I had my own agency. I, a part of what we did is we created a sequence of emails for a client to send to the list. And I explained that out of this five-part sequence, uh, almost all of the sales we anticipate would come from emails three and four. And the client okay. wanted to know why are we sending one, two, and five? <laughs> yeah. and, I, I, and I tried to explain. They say, well, if, if, if we're not going to make any sales over one, two, and five, I forbid you to send them. Like, okay, we'll just send three and four. And remember, this is against Stalker's orders. So when this doesn't work, look in the mirror if you're looking to cast blame. Yeah, yeah. So that and, as, and, and, and as, as soon as they said this, oh, okay, you're the boss, send all five. And it worked pretty much as we had, it worked pretty much as we predicted. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. Obviously, everyone's looking for the quickest, shortest cut to to the answer, whatever that answer may be. But you know, I use the idea, you know, we, you might want to have a baby in three months, but it takes nine. It takes nine months to have a baby. It just takes nine. <laughs> Do you mean you can try and speed it up all you want, but you will cause problems. It takes nine months to create a baby. You know, well, yeah, there, there's mean, that. Like, you know, it's, 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 there's some things just take time and there's no way to shortcut them. And you better do a fucking good job of the time you've got. Those five emails you yeah. just talked about, they all need to be really fucking good. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, let me let me tell you something that happened to me. Um the, the second half of 2021 was by far the best financial year I ever had in business. And uh, by the end of the first quarter of 2022, and again, I'm being candid here, most of the reserve fund that we had built up as a result of that just evaporated. Let me explain to you what happened. Uh, first of all, I was sick for a couple of weeks. No, I'm, I, it was not the bug. Uh, it was something else. Then I had a big pile up of work. 
that I had to get motivated to push through that actually took almost a month because it's funny how one day off can t- can pile up two days worth of work. Isn't that weird how that works sometimes? Hmm. So now we're down about six weeks. And what didn't I do during that whole period? Oh, well, not a whole lot of branding and awareness marketing. So the first thing that I did, the moment that I was past the pile-up, was I created the in-demand expert for Mastermind for podcast hosts and podcast guests, and I relaunched my eponymous website with a media center and information about the Jumpstart Coaching Program. So I created three new points of monetization, and all of which backtrack to create points of content generation, things that will inspire me, things that will drive me to write articles, do live streams, get interviewed, that will accelerate the brand awareness over time. So part of it to me is, and this is where we go a little bit deeper here, is I think, and you tell me your thoughts, some companies just don't view the whole B2B thing as really all that strategic the same way that accounting or sales might be not they don't view it as strategic so they may not allocate the same resources to it they may not give the same stakeholder backing to initiatives coming from marketing so then these companies kind of fall off when it comes to doing things like uh like authority content generated by the human representatives of the company the podcast the appearances of seminars at events, the engagement events for prospects and customers to come and celebrate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As, as I say, when, uh, when the only person you're accountable to is the person in the mirror, it's easy to forgive yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you, you know, run in, yeah, do you run into some of that where it's just, you know, regardless of whether there's planning, it may not be the same level of planning. And even if it is the same level of planning, there may or may not be the same support and sponsorship coming from the power centers that matter yeah i'm probably seeing the opposite of that if i'm being honest with you here in the uk i think right in recent years we've seen an incredible amount of vc money going into the startup scene and the scale-up scene um and obviously those companies need to get attention you know they might have the best product in the world but nobody knows who they are you know, so marketing is absolutely critical to them going on that journey and winning customers. And to the same extent, in any mature market where there is a consolidation of players and there's a lot of me too and sameness, you know, yep. because we've known that for the past 30 odd years, most business leaders are pretty wise to the fact that the only thing that's going to make a difference is marketing, <laughs> you know, whether it's brand, because they sound pretty much the same as their competitors. You go to their website, they say pretty much the same things. So how do, you know, uh, buyers and decision makers make a choice? You know, that all becomes down to creating preference and desire through through brand and through marketing. So I think a yeah. lot of companies that I see are wired to the fact that marketing is you get out of jail card. Do you mean, what else is there in the toolbox that's going to help do this? You know, when I'm seeing, we're seeing more focus on the role, professional accountability the marketing puts in place and a lot of money going into Obviously, the performance channels, because they're easier to measure, but we are seeing a massive swing in favor of brand over the last 
over the last 12 months. And obviously, global markets being what they are at the moment, uncertainty and inflation rates, and who knows where we're heading with the with the tech crashes, etc. Um, maybe we'll go back to performance marketing and brand will just be a moment in history where for two years, we thought we cracked it. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. I I could not agree with that any more, if at all possible. So yeah, you. I want to highlight that you reference marketing as the get out of jail free card. So did I hear that correctly? Yeah, I mean, it's what else is there to differentiate your brand in a sea of me too sameness and competition? What else is there? Yes, you can hire expensive, talented people, but mm-hmm. they need capability behind them. They need the air cover, they need the brand, the marketing, the tools in order for them to be successful. So without clever, smart, strategic marketing, making a difference, earning attention, having something to say, having a personality and a purpose, you are forever just trying to fight that commodity trap and you know get beaten down on price by your um, by your buyers and competitors because there's nothing of value in what you do. And marketing can create that value a hundred percent. Yeah, well, and it's and there's many different ways to market. My way that's most authentic to me and creates the resonance with the people I'm looking for resonance with, and I've tested this time and time again, is to say things that are pattern interrupts that are pretty much the exact opposite of what others have embraced as the conventional wisdom. For example, I've been saying for almost 15 years now that there's something that most businesses have that is destroying them. And if they want to be successful, they, they don't want it, they don't need it, they should get rid of it. And what is that? Getting traffic to their website. Seriously, if you're getting traffic to your website, you're going to fail. Get rid of it. And you are giving the same response that <laughs> I, I get every time on. I say that. Like, what I thought you were the carrying hell? On. So what, what's the what? answer? You don't want to, you want to convert that traffic, surely. All right. So I've lately been testing this in front of audiences where once I get that that silence and those blank stares and those what yeah. and a few of those oh where's he going with this I'll I'll ask them two questions and I'll open it up to the, the forum what is traffic and what is website and dang it I have yet to have anybody identify either of those terms in a way that refers to making sales through a website. I swear to God, it hasn't happened. Maybe maybe three months from now, that'll be an outdated statement. I hope it is. So get rid of traffic to your website and instead seek visitors to your web pages. See what I've done? Visitors to your web pages who conform with the three Ps of website conversions, pre-qualified, prepped, and pumped. So I've taken something that's commoditized. Traffic to your website. And I say that in that tone on purpose. Instead, I redefine it. I say, get rid of traffic to your website. Visitors to your web pages who are pre-qualified, prepped, and pumped, the three P's of website conversions. So I've renamed it and linked a process to it. Does that sound different than everybody else talking about traffic to your website? Yeah, and you've used a technique that we use in creative marketing called provocations. Provocations. You've created a provocation. You've, you know, you've put the zag to the zig when everyone else is talking about this. 
I'm going to be contrarian. I'm going to create a provocation to talk about why. And then that stimulates debate and conversation. That's all you really want to do. Get well, that conversation started. Make it well, a, a topic of interest. Exactly. Well, we don't have time to, de- to delve into this and further, but, uh, and this is one that I want people to think about and then come back and check us out on later. So I'm just going to say the phrase and allow it to just sort of resonate before we get on to the final question I have for you is just like the last thing you need or want is traffic to your website. I say that listeners and downloads are complete and utter bullshit that will doom your podcast to failure. And the provocation is? Provocation. As I said, I want, I want the people to just sit with this for a while and think about it. But I'm going to give I'm going to give one little clue. It has to do with the difference between what you're focusing on and what you're looking to achieve. And I'll just leave it there. Consider it left. All right. So one more question for you before we wrap up here. And this comes down to everything we've covered about humanizing the brand and everything else, it's just something that sticks in my mind. In every case that I've worked with a company, I've been able to convince the ones that wanted to have a a more corporate industry-type feel to identify a human figurehead. So what if an organization just simply doesn't have a human available to be the figurehead in that way? Like there's no one particular leader out of the group of founders, or you do have a C-suite, but they're all essentially equals based on ownership stakes in the company and the actual dynamics between them. Should you just randomly pick one? Should you hire a spokesperson? Or how do you go about that? Yes, I think there's a combination of answers. I think what's been really exciting in the past couple of years is how we've seen big technology companies take on board Brand ambassadors like Matthew McConaughey of Sales used on Salesforce. We've seen Clive Owen for SAP. You know, this is this consumer tactic of having a uh, a well-known figurehead representing the brand, you know, as opposed to the CEO being that kind of spokesperson. But you know, come down a level for the companies who can um, who can't afford that kind of activity. That's where brand matters. You know, if you don't want to necessarily have a spokesperson or a charismatic figurehead, your brand's got to do that heavy lifting. You know, the personality's got to come through your website. It's got to come through your content. It's got to come through your employees. You know, and that's the way to to transition for sure. Yeah. And I found that the best way to come up with content is to have people who have stories to tell. 100%. That's how how I created my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. And it's actually one of the drivers behind my upcoming book on podcasting. It's more stories although there is some specific how-to in it like step one through eight of the podcast reach system it's all in there so you can you have the map and you can follow it however the bottom line is is the actual success of podcasting and the reason why you should do it comes from the stories uh and here's another thing people say we need more SEO. So they want to play with their website, uh, rename their images and play with their menus and everything else. Do you know that podcasting is one of the fastest ways to break into a key phrase that's otherwise saturated simply because of the nature of what it is? Yeah. So I can, I can answer that question to that as well. But again, 
Listeners and downloads are complete and utter bullshit that will doom your podcast to failure. And it has to do with what you focus on versus what you expect. Yeah, so, yeah. And I, and I, you know, I just add to that that, you know, the word story and just creating a story, just, you know, can just go into the digital landfill. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yeah. I mean, and the how you say it is where creativity and imagination and all those other things come into play. You know, there's a gazillion stories out there and we don't know many of them. But the ones that make an effort to tell that story in an interesting way and have got, you know, good production values and clever writing and uh, authenticity and characterization, they're the ones that we, we, we gravitate to, for sure. Precisely. All right, so we are near the top of the hour, and I do want to make sure that our listeners have the opportunity. We discussed a few of the points within Paul Cash's book. Uh, this is a book that he did in, in combination with James Trezona. It's called Humanizing B2B, The New Truth in Marketing That Will Transform Your Brand and Your Sales. I certainly encourage you to check this out. It's available on almost all major book retailers and you can get uh, online versions and print versions so go to w actually i don't know if it's a www but i'll give you the website it's humanizing h-u-m-a-n-i-z-i-n-g b to the number b.com that's humanizing b2b.com if you're looking at this episode on our website go down to the notes and you'll find that url humanizingb2b.com, and claim your copy. I'm going to grab a copy of this myself. Uh, I have uh, actually a couple relaxation points this weekend coming up, and this is exactly the kind of brain food that I'm looking for to mix in with my dystopian alternative history fiction that I like to read for fun. So we're going to combinate, uh, or or rather combine, uh, The End of the World as We Know It and Humanizing B2B. How about that for a juxtaposition? Love it. All right. Yeah. Great. So so that's for our listeners. Get over there, get that book. And Paul Cash, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the business creators radio show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network. So you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.